0: you speak to us right now through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, um, John chapter 9, if you have a Bible, open it up. John chapter 9. Uh, you may not uh, be a motorhead like me, but I, I'm kind of a motorhead. I'm not really a true motorhead. I don't know how to fix cars. I just like to drive them or drive mo- or ride motorcycles or whatever. But I used to love that show uh, called Overhauling if you've ever seen it, it, where they'd find some guy, some poor sap that's got like this, you know, old broken down wannabe hot rod in his garage. And uh, they would, you know, come along and he's never, he's never able to to fix it up because he can't afford it or he doesn't have the time or whatever. And then they would come along and they would steal it while he was at work or something. And then inevitably some, one of the guys would pose as a police officer and they'd be in cahoots with this family. Right. And they would, poses a police officer and say that they're looking for his car and then call him up and say, Hey, we found your car. Come on down. and We'll, we'll give it back to you. And then that one week's time, they would have, you know, overhauled this, this car into this cherry hot rod, this beautiful, beautiful car. And, um, in, inevitably the guy walks into the garage in tears and, um, you know, and, and he, he, it ends with him looking straight at the camera and saying, my name is Joe Smith or whatever it is, and I've been overhauled. And I just, I, I love the cars, and I love that they overhaul them to the point that you just can't even recognize them. Even, even the owner is overwhelmed, uh, that he can't believe it's his car, right? And today in John chapter nine, we're gonna hear, about a man that is overhauled by Jesus. This blind uh, and begging guy, blind and begging in the streets. He's an impoverished, broken down man made new uh, by, by the res- restoration of his sight. And he says to the Pharisees, as he's questioned, you know, I, in, in a sense, he says, I've been overhauled by Jesus, right? So here's the story starting in chapter 9, verse 1. I'll read it and just follow along if you want. It says, As he went along, He saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, "Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind?" "Neither this man nor his parents sinned," said Jesus. "But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him." As long as it is today, when you when uh, uh, I lost myself, as long as it is today, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And this is John's next portrait for us, right? This next portrait of Jesus that he's painting. And this time it is the light of the world. Jesus as the light of the world. All right, let's look at verse 6. After saying this, he, spent, he spit on the ground, and he made some mud with the saliva, kind of nasty, right? And he put it on the man's eyes. And he said, go, wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. That word means sent, right? So he sends this guy to wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing, it says. Now, remember, John's gospel is full of water and apparently some spit, (laughs) right? Uh, You know, remember what we've studied thus far in all these weeks leading up to it. There's nine sermons so far. This is John chapter 9. We've done a sermon, a, a, a chapter. So this is the pool of, uh, of water that the crippled man had tried to get into when Jesus healed him. If you remember that, I think that was John chapter seven, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he's it symbolized the gentle flow flow of living, healing water which God sent into the temple. It was near the sheep gate that imaged the coming Messiah, where the sacrificial sheep were brought in and bathed uh, in preparation for the great sacrifice to wash away the sins of the, uh, the people of Israel and it imaged the coming perfect sacrifice of Jesus. It was the water that they drew, uh, during the feast of tabernacles. We studied that, right? Which Jesus equated with himself as salvation to everyone. If you remember all that, if you haven't been with us, that's some of the things, those are some of the things that we've been learning. But continuing in verse eight in John chapter nine, it says, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said no. He only looks like him. But he himself said, "I or insisted I am the man." Right. So he's been overhauled, and some people that knew him don't even recognize him as the same man. Right. Just like those cars. And now let's go to verse ten. It says, "How? How then were your eyes opened?" They asked, and he replied. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and washed. Um, so I went and washed, and then I could see, right? So we, we, again, in this this chapter, this this passage, we have the concept of light, right this this the questions of sin, of living water, of washing, of healing, of blindness, and all this comes together in this powerful image of Jesus as the light of the world uh, you know and but we have to be careful to look at the surrounding passages to see this to see this really clearly. So if you remember last week the scribes and the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery before him to trap him, right but he had turned the tables on them. And following that, in chapter 8, it's all about conversations Jesus had with the leaders about who he is and who they are, right? And here are a few things that he said. Firstly, in verse 12 of chapter 8, uh, it says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the, the light of life. And so he brings up this concept of light among the people with these these Pharisees, these guardians of truth listening in, as he's done you know he does again with this blind man, and he also says in verse twenty four of chapter eight, he says, "I told you that you would die in your sins if you did not believe that I am he. you will indeed die in your sins." And then he also says in verse forty seven of chapter eight. Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Right? That's not a very nice thing to hear, right? So Jesus has been very, you know, frank and very open about not only who he is, uh, you know, as the light of the world and the Messiah and their salvation and all of that, but he's also been very clear with these leaders and who they are. The most religious people present, right? They're sinful, he says, they're sinful men who actually don't know God. Now, he's making very bold claims about himself all throughout this, this gospel, right? He's inclu- including the fact, back in chapter 8, that Abraham looked forward to seeing Jesus' day come about. Now, that's a big statement because we know that Abraham is the spiritual father of the Jews. They hung a lot of weight on that name, right? But he lived 1,700 years before Jesus. But Jesus says in verse 56 of chapter 8, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now that's kind of strange, right? And throughout this, remember, all these people are gathered around. They're putting their faith in Jesus, and he's addressing these leaders who are standing there who are not believing, and they're listening in, right? Which all, and this all infuriates these leaders, and they say, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus answers at the end of chapter 8, before Abraham was born, I am. <laughs> before Abraham was born, I am. And you've got to understand that's, a, that's another direct claim to divinity uh, for himself because he's using the same Old Testament term that God the Father used for himself, I am. And they pick up stones at that moment, and they try to kill him, but Jesus slips away. So we have to understand all this, you know, what happens before chapter 9, to understand this blind man's story here, since it's all really connected, right? In light of what Jesus just said to them about all of that, about Abraham and light of the world and everything else, He grabs hold of this blind man and heals his blindness, which is from birth, something no one's ever done before. And then he uses this situation as a spiritual metaphor for those leaders and also for us, I would believe. Now, we have a broken down, you know, blind beggar who didn't expect to see anything that day. And Jesus singles him out, lost in a world of darkness, as those whom Jesus addresses are lost in in a spiritual darkness. And although Jesus has been clear as to who he is and what he offers, they remain in the dark. There was once a time, I think, that in all of our lives uh, that we lived in spiritual darkness. If we know Christ, we, we've come to the light of Christ, right? But Jesus singled us out, and he punched a hole in that darkness, bringing light into our lives, right? Possibly, possibly, you are sensing that breakthrough for the very first time right now. Possibly this is the first time you've ever even considered Jesus being the light of life, Jesus being salvation, Jesus being, being uh, your hope for the future and all that stuff. And if you are feeling that for the very first time, I would say pay attention. Listen closely to who Jesus is to you and who Jesus is to me and everybody else listening, right? Now, remember, like all guardians of truth, you know, these Pharisees who cease to follow truth, they don't listen, and so they can't see. And it's a classic case of we've made up our minds, don't confuse us, don't confuse us with the facts, right? We've made up our minds, don't bother us with the facts. So they asked the guy in, in chapter 9, verse 12, he, they say, where is the man, meaning Jesus? And the guy says, I don't know. And so they start interrogating him, right? And he tells them how how it happened. But all they're concerned uh, about is revealed when they say, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That's the only thing that they're concerned about. Because Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath, which he seems to do quite often with people, you know, maybe stirring their thinking, right? And the, and the the problem is the seed's been planted because even some of the leaders start to ask this question. They say, how can a sinner perform such signs? You know, he's, he's healing people. How can a sinner perform such signs? So there's division in the ranks of the leadership now. They're losing control, and the Spirit of God is starting to move even among them. And so they ask the blind man what he thinks, and he responds, well, he, he's a prophet, right? He's a prophet or somebody we should be listening to right? And they, they still won't believe it. And so they go to his parents for proof, if you're following along in chapter 9. His parents confirm, yeah, that's our son. He was blind, right, and all that stuff. But they direct them back to the guy, since his parents are afraid of being excommunicated from the synagogue. It's already been decided that anyone acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah is to be put out of the synagogue. So they are very afraid of what people think of them. And they're succumbing to that fear. So they asked him, they've asked his parents, and now they go back to the guy, right? Verse 24, it says, a second time they summoned the man who had been born blind, and they said, give glory to God by telling the truth, right? (laughs) Like like he's lying. They said, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, "Whether whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. The one thing I do know was I was blind, but now I can see, right? And so their religious pride keeps them blind. They're intent on being guardians of truth, unable to see God at work right in front of them. And they're digging for answers they, they only want to hear, not the ones that are there. Right? Which says we can, we can think ourselves theological experts and still totally miss the work of the Spirit of God right in front of us. And the Jews had been entrusted with the very words of God, and, and the Pharisees serve as a reminder that we can know a lot about Scripture, as we should, but still not recognize his work at all right in front of us. Isn't that interesting? They continue in verse 26. It says, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And I love this, this response. The guy answers, I have told you already. You don't listen, Right? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Which was not that made them a little mad. And so they hurl insults at him and and they said, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses, right? We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow Jesus, right, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answers again, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Right? Poor guy. So Jesus has made his claims clear. He's asked these leaders to listen to him but they're blinded by their pride, right? They're still just trying to win arguments. We've made up our minds. Don't confuse us with the facts, right? Remember, these guys viewed, back in chapter seven we saw this, these guys viewed the regular people as just a rabble who don't understand the law. They don't know nothing, right? But the experts are now getting a theology lesson from a formerly blind beggar. Beggar man preaching truth to what should be the preachers of truth, right? And this man, you know, in his own way, moves from uh considering Jesus, the one they call Jesus, onto a prophet, now to Jesus as a man of God, a man to be followed, a man who works and speaks for God. And the irony is that the religious elite there, who consider themselves better than everybody else, turn out to be the blind, lost in darkness, begging for answers, right? So Jesus uses this physical ailment to communicate a spiritual reality to these elders. Jesus brings light to everyone who will receive him, but spiritual blindness remains for the stubbornly prideful person, right? Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Which is a messianic, a a divine title, right? Who is he, sir? The man asked. This is the same blind guy before. He was formerly blind. Tell me so that I might believe in him, the guy says. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you, right? And the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Very important little phrase there. He worshipped him. So Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains, right? So they they really can't see, but he's saying, well, if you're going to claim that you can see, then you're guilty of rejecting me, right? So this man, this, this blind guy who is seeing now, progressed from seeing Jesus as one among many to a person that he should listen to, one to be followed, and now he sees him as one that is worthy of worship. He sees him as who he really is. This beggar sees Jesus for his true nature, and they ca- and the other guys cast him out. But Jesus goes looking for him, and he bestows light on a, on a blind man from birth, who had never known light in more of the ways than one, right? But let's not miss the other message, that those who claim to know truth but refuse to follow truth actually choose spiritual darkness and are deemed guilty. They've heard and they've even seen and they still refuse to believe. And Jesus says later in chapter 20, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, that's speaking of you and me, because I've never grabbed hold of the physical body of Jesus. I've never seen him do a miracle in my neighborhood, I, you know, it, it, as a physical person walking around with us. But I still believe that he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. I, don't, I, don't, I can't explain that to you. The Spirit of God came into me, and, and I was convicted, and I've changed. So what does all this mean for us? In past weeks, we've heard a lot about who Jesus is. We've looked at God, the Holy Spirit, and what he means in our lives. You know, we could identify with one of four people in this story. We, we could identify with a blind man. We could identify with a confused crowd, right? We could identify with a man's parents who are afraid of what people think. And we could identify with these Pharisees, these guardians of truth, refusing to follow because Jesus doesn't fit their religious tradition. Maybe you've met Jesus. Maybe you, you gave your life to Christ a long time ago. You've received the Holy Spirit, the seal of the Holy Spirit, which we've talked about a lot in this series. And you've walked with him for years. Maybe you've grown up in the church, and as a result, you've become sort of jaded. You've become sort of a lifeless, prideful guardian of truth instead of a follower of truth. Don't panic, right? Because I know none of us want to be the guardian of truth. We want to be followers of Jesus, don't we? So what's holding us back? But isn't it fear? And if so, fear of what? Fear of what? Well, firstly, I think it might be a fear of rejection, right? Because to follow Jesus, to really walk with Jesus in life, has implications for relationships, doesn't it? You know, we might fear in following Jesus that some, you know, Others might reject us or, or even think that we're stupid, right? That were, we're archaic in our thinking. A girlfriend or a boyfriend may break up with us since they, they don't see Jesus as the same. Scripture says, What fellowship does light have with darkness? They don't really fit. Work may be affected. I may have to find another job, right? Family and friends. You know, it may not like me since my life and my choices will start to change. And some of us, uh, as a result of all this, will develop sort of dualistic lives, right? We're, we're one thing at church, and we're another thing with our family and friends or at work or whatever, right? We live in a world right now that is rife with conflicting opinion and thought on God and spirituality, God has chosen to communicate himself through the Bible, through the person of Jesus Christ, and through the church. Yet there's an undercurrent within Christian circles uh, challenging the origins and the trustworthiness of, of the Bible, of the scriptures. Although it's the most backed up, most uncontested writing, ancient writing that there is. Nothing compares to the Bible with textual integrity and witness. Not even Shakespearean literature comes close. You could have more doubt in, in Shakespeare than you can have in the Bible. That, that the words of Shakespeare were written down as Shakespeare wrote them as you could have in the Bible. The Bible is much more uh, proven to be um, right to the beginning. You know, when I was a new Christian, I had a passion for the Bible. I had a passion for the scriptures, and I wanted to follow Jesus well, so I, I, I ate them up. I just read them and meditated on them all the time. And over time, I allowed myself to be swayed by those various conflicting voices out there, you know, inside the church even in, and even outside the church, which ate away at the biblical integrity in my brain instead of simply standing on biblical truth. I didn't want to sound stupid. I didn't want to sound dogmatic. I didn't want to sound as as if I was a fanatic. And I didn't yet know how to speak about or rectify difficult topics in my faith. But praise God, the Holy Spirit grabbed hold of me and immersed me farther down into the Word, allowing it to define my thinking. And I took every thought captive to Christ, and no matter what others thought of me, I had to have integrity standing on God's word despite what all the cultural climate teaches us out there right now. God's word is life and light to everyone and it's important. It, it, it's, you know, it's, it's important that we live it out as Jesus would have us live it out to know it and see Jesus at work through it. See, the Pharisees weren't wrong in knowing the word of God, being being steeped in their understanding of it. They just didn't allow God to speak through it. They didn't recognize the living word standing right before them. It, It had become an intellectually prideful activity to them, not a humbly convicting walk of faith. You know, a good church will hold to the foundational beliefs universally held by all Christians across the board yet provide an atmosphere where people can question and wrestle with who Jesus is via scripture, scripture openly, right? But let me tell you that that is a great art. To create that kind of culture is a very difficult art. To walk in grace and mercy while still upholding the standards of holiness and the mission of God, which we're all called to in the Scriptures. That's a difficult thing. I think we do it pretty well at six eight, but we're always trying to improve on that. You know, we saw last week in John chapter 8 when Jesus both acted with compassion, but he also held everybody in that story to the standards of holiness within that story of the adulterous woman. So are we willing to allow the scriptures to challenge long-held errant beliefs or our unflinching pride? Allowing the Holy Spirit to guide with compassion and understanding while being rooted in truth. Because sometimes we believe what we believe, not based on on God's word, on the Bible, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, but on what culture dictates, Uh, even church culture can get it wrong sometimes. And when the Holy Spirit challenges all that, we go through stages of emotion about it, don't we? The first being our our defensiveness, right? Where we automatically disagree and we turn to our proof texts, which we've developed over years to make us feel comfortable about false convictions such as the Pharisees do. Faith's informed and defined by a healthy diet of the scriptures who testify about Jesus, led by the Spirit in community with mature believers. So I can't let my precious reputation get in the way, being more concerned with acceptance of others or what others might think of me, swimming with the current when Jesus actually demands at times that I swim against the current. Then there's, we have this fear of God, that, that fear that God won't show up. When we act in faith and this fears goes back to our conversation two weeks ago about life with the Holy spirit. What if I pray and God doesn't come through, right? When, when COVID-19 strips away all of our safety nets was Nietzsche, right? Is God dead? Is, Is faith a farce? That's where we're confronted, right? And this fear leads us to feel that we need to cover or make excuses for God, and we don't. And so we start to ask for less and expect less, and we're satisfied with less, and we're afraid to ask for and expect more from our Father in heaven. And I will say right now that I believe that God is pained when his children pull back in these ways. When our, when our faith becomes milk toast, right? When it's just sort of, it's, it has no teeth, it has no power, it has no risk to it. See, the questions we really need to ask are, do I believe God keeps his promises even in the midst of pain and loss and loneliness? Do our prayers and actions give evidence to a vibrant faith even in isolation with the loss of income and in the face of death? When I pray, do I pray truly asking for what God wants in this situation or what I really want? And the question for us right now is not what God is not doing, but what, what is he doing? What is he doing? Because he is doing something. And it's an opportunity for us to engage with that. You know, I've been asked to pray for over a lot of people uh, in my lifetime. And often as I'm doing that, I, I receive direction from the Spirit. Usually it's very encouraging words, you know, uh, tr- but it translates usually into action for a person. It's sometimes it's just an encouraging word, right, just to lift their hearts up, but sometimes it's an, an, an encouraging press towards action, such as Jesus says to people when he heals them, he says, go and sin no more. You hear him say that quite a bit, right? Don't, you know, change something, <laughs> you know what I mean? And God may reveal You know, when I'm praying for somebody that their difficulties are a result of life choices that they've made or an unhealthy lifestyle. And God might want to free them from that. God might be telling them that they need to repent and be transformed to turn away from these things. But they, but usually people refuse since they want an instant cure and not true freedom. Isn't that sad? In their minds, God didn't work, he didn't heal, he didn't fix their situation, and his direction is disregarded. A little bit of what may have been faith to this kind of a person uh, dies in them since they've chosen to remain in darkness. They've chosen not to listen. And this has to do with our prayer focus right now for Hosea 10:12. If you're you've been praying through that, breaking up your unplowed ground, where do you need to grow? And where is God challenging you, right? And oftentimes these requests are, are you know that people have are inconsistent with God's will and God's mission in their life. So God says no, or he gives a different direction. And we also have to admit that we have evil forces working against us all the time, right? So It comes down to trust. Do we really believe that God knows best for us? And are we committed to listening and following even in the bleakest of moments? Now, the final fear is the opposite of God not showing up, and that is the fear of God showing up. What if if God actually does show up in my life? (laughs) Right? The truth is, most don 't want to be led by anyone but themselves, we are led by our own pride, usually, let alone the, the word and the spirit of God. The idea of con- you know giving control to someone else is so frightening. What are they going to ask me to do? Where will they ask me to go? Uh, what will they ask me to give up? Will it be uncomfortable? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Yes, I can promise the Holy Spirit will lead you to things and to ministry in your life that you normally would not choose, that might make you uncomfortable, that might not be your everyday normal thing to do, but it's good for you. It's painful, but it's good. It's risky and uncomfortable, but it's wonderful. Jesus doesn't seek to hurt us. He wants to grow us and use us in his kingdom ministry. And that is always the best for us and everybody around us. An example of this is the character, in, uh, Eustace in C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? Eustace, due to all his choices and his stubborn pride towards Aslan, turns into the personification of sin. He becomes a dragon. A little boy turns into a dragon. And, and to turn back into a little boy, the dragon skin has to be painfully stripped away to get to who Eustace is really meant to be. And Eustace tries himself to rip it off, but, he, but it doesn't work. Just like we can't, you know, pay for our own sins, we can't do that. But Aslan, as as the God figure, has to do it for him, and he does. And when asked how it felt, Eustace says, it hurt, but it was a good sort of pain, sort of like having a thorn pulled from your foot. The Holy Spirit will lovingly strip away all that holds you back from Jesus to make you who you're really meant to be, and that is a wonderfully painful process. It'll, it'll make you face your worst of fears, but it's wonderful. So how do you want to live your life as a confused part of the crowd, never really coming to a final decision about Jesus? We're coming up to Easter next week, and, and basically we ha- we'll have cheesters, they call them, right, Christmas and Easter Christians, people that come twice a year. If you're one of those and you're walk, watching right now, we talk about you, <laughs> and I want you to change that. I want you to know Christ and to give your life totally to him, and to become a part of the church. That's my challenge to you. Stop sitting on the fence, right? You could be the timid parents of this man, afraid of being kicked out of the club, right? Always trying to worry about what people think of you. Give that up. Give it up. Who cares, right? Or you could be a guardian of, the tru- guardian of truth, never following, just living your life, to win arguments, you're, you're more intelligent than everybody else, blah, blah, blah. you got no spiritual power, though. Or you could be the poor beggar who's been overhauled, following Jesus into a wonderful kingdom life, open to seeing the, the, where the Spirit will lead, open to having the Scriptures round out your view of God for the rest of your life, an act of vibrant life of faith. Now, if you identify with the blind man, and just you 're just now seeing that light, I want you to email me today, and I want to pray with you to receive the seal of the Holy Spirit in your life today, because I believe that Jesus can overhaul your broken life. I think he can, I know he can, and if you 're like the parents, afraid of what others might think, let 's pray through that as well. if you 're part of the crowd confused about who he is, email me, call me, we can talk I, I do want to talk about that, and if you find yourself As a guardian of faith, email me and we can pray that you can humbly follow Jesus once again, knowing he's not done with you yet. He's doing something now in our world through our current situation. And we're all, in a sense, going through some pain of being overhauled right now and and many and shared in different ways. Some of us are very lonely. Some of us are very uh, depressed right now. Some of us are very, um, you know, just just longing for this to be over. Some of us are very scared because all the safety nets have been taken away. You've lost your jobs, you've lost your income, thinking things like that. So we're praying for you, and we want to keep in touch with each other. But Christ is the light of the world. Christ is the hope of the world, and we are proclaiming that strongly right now. Let me pray for us as we. we walk out of this today, Father God. we thank you that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords that you are you made the heavens and the earth you're the creator of all of this that that is around us and we, we we've preached these sermons for years where we've seen people uh, we've asked people to consider not putting their faith in all of these things that we put our faith in our our finances our bank accounts our you know our job, anything else, but only in you. And now some of those things have been stripped away or all of those things have been stripped away. And we pray that you would show our faith and our hope to be real and true and that we would be a minister of the gospel to each other right now and to those that don't yet know you. We pray for a harvest of people to come to know you through this. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we're gonna leave this live. You guys can chat.